Welcome to episode 348 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I've come up with a new, not necessarily creative name for this series, the summer series of being in prayer in the Disciples' Prayer, or it's colloquially known as the Lord's Prayer. How about we just call this When You Pray? It's the When You Pray series. There you go. I like that. I like that a lot. Pretty about that. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. So we're talking about the Lord's Prayer all summer long, or for as long as we're doing it, if you're not listening to us in real time, and it's just some random part of the year, know that we started this with the idea of taking a summer season to really marinate in the Lord's instruction about prayer. And we're taking this in this really kind of like measure. This is like slow cooker. You know, it's like set it and we'll not forget it exactly, but like set it and just let like your beef braise in its own liquid for on low, very slow for a long time until it just gets amazingly tender and juicy and filled with all this flavor and save me from the crock pot metaphor that I'm just <laughs> No, no, keep jumping. going. Keep going. Just keep going. Yeah, it's it's so delicious. My 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 mother, your mother-in-law was like always a fan and it continues to be of using the slow cooker, especially like on the Lord's day, I remember yeah. this, coming back from church and just the house being filled with this great aroma of like this slow cooked beef. Yeah. Like vegetables, yeah. It's it's great. All right. This podcast is not about that. It is, however, about the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to get to affirmations and denials in just a second. But as a way of like teasing into our conversation today, you know, we talked about last time how this prayer is instructive. It's a great gift to us that our Lord and Savior would give us explicit and specific instruction on how to pray. And he's concerned clearly with what we pray, even more than like all the books that have been written about when or where or how long we pray. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, is really concerned about this great freedom in many elements of prayer. But two things. One, we must not neglect praying. And two, we must pray for the sort of things that Jesus tells us to pray for. So that's all of this series. When we pray is about uncovering those things, diving into those things, sitting in those things, and then getting into them with like the two-minute prayer challenge, which I think we'll come back to again. So we're going to be talking about our Father in heaven. Today's just another two words, in heaven. But before we get to the in heaven, let's get to those other two great words, affirmations and denials. What are you affirming with on this episode? So I'm affirming a, a YouTuber and this YouTuber's name is Matt Ragland. He has kind of a productivity guru style um, YouTube channel. But what I like about uh, Matt Ragland, and there's a couple other productivity people who are kind of in the same wheelhouse is he talks about productivity in a way where it's not about just hustling harder. Okay. So, so a lot of times when you look up a productivity channel or you get people who are really into sort of productivity methodology, it's just about like cramming more in, doing more, getting more done. Right. And it's all about the hustle. And, um, Matt's methodology that he has developed and has modified from other people is really more about um, working smarter. So it's it's more of an efficiency methodology than it is like a harder working methodology. 
So it's a lot about like making sure that you're working on the right things and establishing top level goals and then figuring out what work actually moves you towards those top level goals and breaking breaking down those goals into individual actionable items that are every single action is moving you towards that goal. And I just really like that thought process because I think, you know, you and I have talked a lot about productivity, both on the show and off the show. And, and I, I think we can sometimes get into this trap of productivity of productivity for its own sake of just like being able to show like, well, I checked off 150 tasks today and it doesn't matter which tasks those were or what goals I accomplished or did I actually even produce anything that is adding value to my life or value to the world or whatever. Um, that, that is, is just a treadmill to run on. Um, and there might be some benefits to that in that it sort of does teach you a certain level of discipline in, being able to say like, I'm just going to do a lot of work today and I'm going to get a lot of work done without an eye towards how much, like what the work is. But I find that that can just be really, really exhausting. And whether it's, whether it's a a list of a hundred books you want to read this year and you don't remember anything from all of any of them, um, like he, he talks about note-taking as like a slow laborious process and you may only read five books in a year, but you read those books deeply and you understand them and you really, you really, um, digest them and then utilize them. Not everybody would agree with me that that's, that's better, but I think that's better reading five books in a year, reading one book in a year that you really make use of and you really understand is better than reading a hundred books that you just don't, you just don't remember. I mean, if you're going to do that, you might as well just add them to your red list on Goodreads and just call it even like who cares if you actually read them because you might as well not have, I mean, I suppose that would, one way would be a lie. One would be not a lie. So don't do that. But just reading, you know, your eyes passing over every word on the page is not the goal of reading, um, at least not as far as I am concerned. So I, I think check this out. He's got a lot of good just general productivity stuff. Um, he's developed a lot of frameworks um, where where you can apply this framework in a sort of straightforward manner. And if you're thoughtful about how you establish your top level goals and then thoughtful about what what deliverables contribute to that goal, um, it's kind of mechanical. If you actually do the work in the time scale that you you move towards, um, he talks about stacking uh, stacking productive weeks on top of each other. And so as you stack productive days on top of each other, you get productive weeks. As you stack productive weeks on top of each other, you get productive months and quarters and years. And as long as every single step in that process is oriented towards a particular goal, you're going to consistently make progress towards that goal. So I just really like the channel. He seems like a genuine guy. I don't know. I'm, I, I doubt that he's a believer. I mean, I guess I don't have any real reason to say yes or no, but it just seems like it's unlikely that he's a, a Christian, but um, he seems like a genuine nice guy. His, you know, his um, videos are relatively clean. I don't think I've heard him swear. And even if he does, it's probably pretty tame. Um, some of that's probably because he doesn't want to get demonetized, but um, it, you can watch it with your family. I don't know why you would watch productivity videos with your family, but you could, yeah, I guess. Not, everybody. Um, I know what we're doing at the beach. We're going to sit down and watch some productivity YouTube videos. I love it. So anyway, I could go on about it, but it's just a good channel. And especially if you're kind of into productivity, if you've been struggling with like, almost like a sense of aimlessness. Like, you know, you should be doing something and moving towards something, but you're not exactly sure how to get there or like what, what to implement to do it. Um, he is a good, 
I think a good model that's not over going to overwhelm you with this sort of instant productivity. I have to accomplish a hundred tasks a day, or I'm not really doing right. anything. Kind of a feel. He, you could get one task done a day, and as long as it's the right task, then his methodology would say that you've accomplished what you need to do. So check it out. Matt Ragland is his. Um, YouTube channel. He had a podcast. I'm not 100% sure if he's still doing it, but there's a bunch of backlog episodes. I think it's called Connect the Dots. Um, yeah, check it out. I really like it. Thought I'd recommend it. That's that's the whole affirmation. There's so much in productivity that really comes from, is drawn out of the scriptures. So I think, again, some people think, well, this is a man-made process just to accomplish more things, maybe for self-aggrandizement or self-fulfillment. However, we find the scriptures are replete with this idea that Jesus has come to give us abundant life. That's spiritual, physical, emotional, but certainly what gets hegemony is the spiritual life. And in that, there is this impounded sense that all the things that we should do and want to do and we'll find fulfillment in will be will come through God and will be the result of us bearing fruit in some yeah. way. So what's interesting is even hearing you describe that, there's definitely like this Mary Martha component, isn't there? Yeah. There's this idea that like there are many things that you can do and there's many opportunities that you do have, but are you pursuing your calling? That is like, are you accomplishing the things in life that actually bear fruit? And to quote like another book, which you and I have shared quite a bit on this podcast in our conversations, I think a lot about Atomic Habits yeah. and the author makes this distinction between being in motion and being in action. And motion just sometimes is that sense of like, I'm busy doing something, right. but really not accomplishing anything. Whereas action is any kind of activity that you undertake that bears fruit. Yeah. And so I think what we're after, and what I see a lot of productivity at people after is saying like, don't worry about the motion. Like the world celebrates motion. That like you've done a lot of things, accomplished a lot of stuff, had a huge list and you crossed everything off, but maybe none of those things actually resulted in fruit and value in the abundant life. And so it's funny to me that they're kind of distinguishing this Mary Martha stuff. Like there was a lot of things that Martha was doing in service, presumably of Jesus and her sister to prepare for like this meal to make their home hospitable. And what Jesus says is like, be about the things right. that matter most, be about the stuff that I'm instructing you on. And he champions Mary in that example as the one who is able to see what the real productive life is about, so to speak, trying to trying to marry these things together. So no pun intended there. So I'm totally with you. I think there's so much lovely stuff that we can take. And as Christians, we can pull that into how we process and read, especially the scriptures and how we prioritize the activities that we undertake. But of, this is kind of like when we say, listen, every employer should want to hire Christians because Christians should be the best workers. Christians should be the most productive people in life. Yeah. And by productive, yeah. what we're saying is the ones that add the most value. Yeah. That's like the bottom line. Productivity by any other definition is like a farce. It's a fool's errand. So I love that we have people like through other means, they're coming to the same conclusion. Yeah. And I think that that's amazing. And of course, they're just smuggling in these biblical principles. Yeah. I, I have a much greater... Um appreciation for the doctrine concept of common grace after this last year of really spending a lot more time reading non-theological books. Um, for whatever yeah. reason, my reading list has just been a lot more non-explicitly theological books. Um, and like, you know, one of the, one of the principles that I've learned that seems to be very common among this sort of efficiency oriented productivity group is, not to borrow trouble from your task list, like down the road, like, 
and that's just a straight up, like, don't be anxious for tomorrow because tomorrow has enough anxiety for itself. Like it doesn't make any sense for me to, to worry about all the goals and the productivity metrics that I have to hit in six months. I really need to focus on like, what do I need to do today? And, but that doesn't mean don't think about those other things in six months. Of course. It's not that I shouldn't worry about what I'm going to eat tomorrow. But if I'm so freaked out about what I'm going to eat tomorrow that I don't bother to get to work today, then I'm certainly not going to eat tomorrow. That's just a good common grace, common grace principle that a lot of these guys have kind of hooked into. A lot of like the stoicism, the Ryan Holiday stuff, we've just hooked into this common grace principles. And it's it's no surprise, right? This is the way that the universe works because this is the way God created it. And so it's also the way he's revealed himself through nature and revealed himself through the word. So yeah, check it out. I, th- I think you'd be edified um, by the common grace principles that are there, the common grace insights that this guy's come to through his own sort of study of nature. Um, there's a there's a Vantillion out there somewhere that is just losing their mind that I said that, but uh, <laughs> don't at me. But this is this is what it is. So what about you? What are you uh, affirming? So I'm going to go with an explicitly theological book, which is slightly different. I love when the banner of truth releases new material, particularly Puritan paperback stuff that was heretofore unpublished or not as like well published. Yeah. And this is one of those times. Incidentally, how can we get the banner of truth like to sponsor this podcast? Somebody's got to have a connection. Like I, I want to give the banner of truth books to every listener everywhere to all the people. That's what I want to do. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't have any connections. I think maybe I emailed them once and never heard something. back from them. So, yeah. So some somebody help us out here because we we love to get in there. That's not even the affirmation. The affirmation is this newly published uh, Puritan work from the Banner of Truth. It's John Owen's Gospel Life, Ooh. and what I love about this is. It's a compilation of 13 sermons from John Owen, and he's basically coming after hard some questions that are common to all seekers who are looking after Christ. Things like, how can I know if I truly have faith? What does it look like to be conformed to Jesus? How does God see me? And this is just, he's at like his finest in these sermons. It's really actually toward the end of his preaching career. So these are like incredibly honed, amazing works that they're, they're like discrete, they're compartmentalized. You can open this book and use it devotionally if you want to in daily worship. You can read them all in one sitting. You're just going to be blown away. Trust me, you should just go out, stop what you're doing now, pause the podcast, go to Banner of Truth, and just order John Owen's Gospel Life. Here's the thing. In my mind, when I imagine there is a documentary or maybe like a drama of John Owen's life, and it comes to a scene where he is preaching these sermons. In my mind, as I'm creating and crafting this kind of epic scene of him taking the pulpit, and then what kind of walk-up music would it be? It's going to be Andy, Andy Minio's coming in hot. And here's why. Because <laughs> in typical like Owen fashion, not only is the theology strong, there are like throwaway lines in these sermons, loved ones, where he's just like putting people on blast. Let me just give you one to like whet your appetite so you'll actually go out and support the Banner of Truth Trust and buy this book. Um, this is from his first sermon in this book. It's on the strength of faith. This is just what he says. It's just like a byline in the midst of him talking about what it means to have the strong faith, how that is honed and crafted and wrought by the spirits in the life of the Christian. But he says this, and I quote, by some men's too much understanding, 
others have been brought to understand nothing at all. End quote. <laughs> Which is now, amazing how, coming from John Owen. Yes, exactly. Now, how contemporary is that? Yeah. Like the reform community would do well to like put that on a bumper sticker and be like, lest you fall into this, yeah. make sure that you are bringing about understanding and by your too much understanding, you haven't made it such that somebody understands nothing at all about what you're saying. So this is in typical Owen fashion. He's put on the, the red boots. He's laced them up. He was sent it to the pulpit and he's just preaching absolute fire. So get this book. There, there's literally no way that you can be disappointed. So go out to the Banner of Truth Trust. And when you do that, when you submit your order, do me a favor, email them and tell them they should sponsor the Reformed Brotherhood podcast so we could just proliferate all the materials to all the world. So if your um your song for him would be coming in hot, my song would be these boots are made for walking. <laughs> and then and then the the punchline when he says this line, some yeah. guy in the back is like, yeah, and he's like, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking <laughs> about you. And the guy's like, mm. oh, and ma maybe we could get the guy in the back since this is the era of cameos. The guy in the back who says yeah, and the guy says I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. We get Paul Washer to play that guy in the back that gets clapped on. <laughs> That'd be like the ultimate deep cut, like the weird, like only several, like a few people would get that, and it would be amazing. Like, it'd be like the ultimate Easter egg. Yeah, it'd be like it'd be like when Howard the Duck shows up in Guardians of the Galaxy one and two, and and like the real real Marvel comic fans are like, I know that guy, and everyone else is like, what's the deal with that duck? I have no frame of reference for that. See, but. exactly. I thought the Howard the Duck cameo was amazing. And you're like, what's the deal with that duck? So yes. you don't even I know was, about the duck. I don't even know about the duck. I don't even know about that movie, quite honestly. But <laughs> I, I know there's like a raccoon. Anyway, I know that's triggering for some people. That's why I say it. Uh, this is this is great. So I think that people should just, just go out and get it. I mean, the banner of true trust. Uh, I just love that they continue to make these kinds of materials available. And they also do some, it's not, I wouldn't say call it translation, but formation yeah. or transformation of the language to make it more readable and approachable. Yeah. That is a great gift to all of us. So it's like an I just cannot yeah, recommend these things more highly. But because we've just been so gushing and glowing about two things, productivity, John Owen, Red Boots, we have to take a turn here and get a little bit negative. The people want to hear it. What are you denying against? So this one's going to come across a little bit weird because I think I actually have affirmed this app in the past Ooh. and now I'm denying this app. I may Controversy flip-flop. And it's ironic that you mentioned that raccoon because I'm denying Rocket Money. Uh, have you ever used Rocket Money or it used to be called Truebill? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. So it used to be called Truebill. And when it was Truebill, it was a free app. It was a super easy to use service. Um, it got bought out by the company that does like rocket mortgages. And what, what happens a lot of times with apps is you get this really awesome free app and then, you know, people love it and then it gets bought out and then it gets totally like corporate and it's terrible. And rocket money is an app that I, that advertises itself as like more or less it's an advertisement to automatically unsubscribe from subscriptions that you may, for, may have forgotten that you have. Right. So you connect your bank account and it can identify some subscriptions just by like what the bank entry says. But more or less what it does is it looks for recurring costs and then it calls those to mind. And then it it can unsubscribe from a lot of things automatically. So you can literally just click unsubscribe. They will contact the company that does the subscription and they'll cancel your subscription for you. 
And this was originally built out and advertised when it was Truebill and then now still as Rocket Money as like, this is the answer to all those companies that have these really, really difficult unsubscribe processes. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in the spirit of Rocket Money, I'm looking at all my subscriptions and I realize that I'm paying for a Rocket Money premium. I must have done it at some point in the past to try to negotiate a rate with my cell phone company or something. There are some features that require the premium function. So I go about trying to cancel my premium rocket money and it is a ridiculously difficult process. So I'm just denying this uh, company because they seem to be very hypocritical. And also I want to cancel the service and I can't quite figure out how, and they're not, their customer service isn't open on the weekends. So I can't even call them to say, cancel my subscription. I have to wait until Monday. So all of the things that other companies do to make it difficult for you to unsubscribe to their services that Rocket Money apparently is the solution for, Rocket Money is itself doing. So I, I don't know. If you want to use Rocket Money, that's on you. It's it's a fine service if you want to use it, but just be aware of what you're getting into. And like like we've said many times, if something is free on the internet, there's a good chance that you are the product that is being sold. Right on. Um, that's not applicable to our podcast, which is free on the internet, but it may be applicable to something like Rocket Money or something like that. Even if all that they're selling you as is a part of the statistic, they say that such and such a number of people have used Rocket Money to save such and such right. amount. Even that is still them selling your, uh, selling you as the product in a in a very light way. Um, so just be aware and yeah, if you want to use it, it's a fine service, but it can have its little pitfalls. Caveat emptor, buyer beware. Yep. It's definitely a key, wise to keep an eye on all those things. And you're right. It's what a time to be alive because you get access to a lot of things and oftentimes that are super low cost, but that probably means that the cost or the value is being born elsewhere, maybe in a more subtle way. And you're totally right. That is a little bit hilarious. Like it's an inside job. Like yeah. they've basically been like, we do understand how difficult it is to unsubscribe from all this stuff. That's why I bring you this service. And yet we all practice and hone and particularize all of those barriers to make it super painful for you to unsubscribe from us. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of genius. It is. I mean, it's genius in that they probably have used all of the stuff they've learned on exactly. how to get out of this stuff to make their process more difficult. Like apparently I also have an, a pending negotiation fee that I haven't paid and I can't, I can't cancel the service automatically until I've paid that negotiation fee. But no matter what I do, I cannot find a place that allows, and they have a, they have a credit card on file for me. So I don't know why that fee hasn't just been collected. I've never been notified that I owe anything until I try to cancel. And now there's a negotiation fee that I have no way to pay, nowhere to find it. So even their like online chat people tech support aren't available on the weekends. So maybe I'm just cranky about this one thing. It Maybe it just ruined my morning trying to cancel this thing. And I just wanted to vent about it. But listen, there's nothing more frustrating than when you're trying to get in touch with somebody or resolve some kind of issue, especially if, if it involves money and you can't do it. So I hear that. It's just frustrating. So that's a good warning. I, I I appreciate that. What about you? What are you denying? I'll try to make this really quick so we can get to the good stuff. So I'm denying against, I guess, what I would call unnecessary and perhaps unconscious distinctions between the gospel message for children and adults. I've just come off a week of our church putting together a VBS of each of the five nights and it's been fantastic. It's been tiring. It's a mix of being exhausted, but also being fully blessed. 
and filled up in a weird way, certainly spiritually. And one of the things I've so appreciated is, you know, our church, I think one of the great things that we do is we try to write some music together that is particular and unique to the particular VBS program that we're doing. And it's children's music. So it's it's made for children. It's poppy, it's repetitive, but it's principled, it's doctrinal, it's theologically deep. But of course, it is wrapped in this kind of wrapper that is for children. And I've seen sometimes adults, including myself, will look at that with a little bit of like diminishing return and say, yeah, that's great. That's for children. I'm not, I don't need to participate in that. Or they'll separate themselves out and say, you know, like, well, that's great. And I'm glad the kids enjoy it, but that's not for me. And I saw this week, what was a great testimony to me is so many adult leaders, so many adult volunteers leaning into that and worshiping greatly in music that of course is childish type of music, at least like in its composition, but it is rich and deep and thick in its theological content. And so the denial is against making that separation and pulling yourself away from something just because it comes in a children's wrapper and instead embracing those things because like there are no JV Christians. And in truth, the gospel is for children of all ages whom God calls to himself in adoption and so we just never get out of that elementary classroom. We're always sitting, yeah. no matter how big like we physically grow, we're at those tiny desks with our knees hitting the tabletop. And that's okay. So I was just like really amazed at how I was blessed by the testimony of those who were just like singing their lungs out at these children's songs. Because the truth of the matter is every word that they were singing was in great praise to a great God with strong theological truth. And it didn't matter what the music was like. They were focusing on the worship that was inside of all of this noise organized together. So I'm affirming that and denying against, let's not make distinctions. Like, you know, you pull up a children's I don't know, like Sunday school lesson plan. That's for everybody. No matter how it's communicated, it's for everybody. And sometimes we forget that Jesus said, listen, unless you become like one of these children that trust in the Father, put full faith in the Father, have this principled, first principled understanding of what it means to be in relationship with God. Listen, you you can't come into the kingdom. The kingdom is made for those. And we sometimes think that, ah, like give me some real music. Give me, give me some real praise and worship. There is no realer praise and worship than the kind that's been made for children. That, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I thought this was going to go a different direction, but I think it it actually relates. Is at the same time, we also need to realize that the gospel for children is the same gospel for adults in yeah, the other direction, right? So yes. you're kind of saying like the gospel for children isn't something that like is too immature for adults. Yes. But at the same time, we shouldn't have like an immature gospel that's for the kids and a mature gospel is for the adults. Yes, and exactly. This is something we have to be constantly careful of. And are you ready for me to trigger all of the Southern Baptists? Let's do it. So Al Mohler, who I have great respect for, um, although I'm, I'm not a Baptist and obviously have disagreements in that part of our theology and, and the related issues. On the briefing on Friday, there was a rare swing and a miss for Dr. Moeller in that when he was trying to explain more or less a question about like, how is it that infants or young children are saved? He he made the distinction. It wasn't quite the age of innocence argument, but he made the distinction basically that like when children are not uh, old enough to know the difference between good and evil, that God, God saves them. Um, God, God saves them in the ordinary way, but he saves them 
sort of because they don't know the difference between good and evil. It's not that they don't sin. So it's not quite the age of innocence. The age of innocence argument is like that children are not morally accountable until a certain age. And so they, they don't actually have any sin on their account. It's not the argument he was making. So I want to be fair, but it's a sort of like a kissing cousin of that argument that like, because the child doesn't know the difference between good and evil, that God doesn't actually hold the account them accountable to that good and evil. And instead of, it's not that he doesn't hold them accountable, but he's, he saves them on account of the fact that they don't know the difference between good and evil. And he would also apply that to adults who have cognitive deficiencies or have suffered a brain injury or something that causes them to be in that same inability to know the difference between good and evil. That's just not, that's just not the biblical model. And it, it results in this, this different gospel for kids than right. for adults. Um, he, right. he has biblical support for it. He points to like the, the Israelites in the wilderness and God punishes the generation that knows good and evil. And one of the lines in, uh, in the Bible to distinguish between the first generation who is being punished and the second generation who's not, there's something about, they did not know the sin that they committed or something. There's a line to that effect that he's using. So it's not as though he doesn't have biblical language undergirding his argument. But yeah, you're right. Like the gospel is the same no matter who it is being applied to. No matter who it is that's being preached the gospel, it's the single same gospel. And while we may explain it in more complex or more simplistic terms, we may wrap it up in different packaging in terms of like a deep theological hymn for adults versus a more poppy, you know, fun, happy song for kids. It's the same gospel. The kernel of truth that's there has to be exactly the same. So yeah, I, I'm I'm with you, man. I'm all about that. Yeah, me, me too. And again, as we come to this conversation then about the Lord's Prayer, or again, more aptly, the Disciples' Prayer, God giving us instruction. This is for our children. It's for us. It's for everyone. And again, what I think we'll see as we talk about what it means that our Father is in heaven, that we find there is truth for all of us. And then again, we could easily draw back to our previous conversation with people should listen to. We talk about what it means that God allows us to address him as father. And so we're all children. We're all children of different yeah. ages, but we're all children. And so there's a lovely diversity, both of experience and maturity and physical age. But what we find is that at the end of the day, God doesn't say like, well, here you are, my adults. He says, here you are, my children. Right. And so we find ourselves humbled in that. And particularly in this place where we start to think about him as our father in heaven. So as we are going to do throughout this When You Pray series, let me read again from Matthew 6, just so we can always continually be hearing this prayer. It becomes the kind of thing that I hope is like a constant drip on our minds, such that either we just end up memorizing it by way of you hearing it from my voice over and over and over again, or we're just drawn to this lovely repetition, this cadence that happens in the way in which God says to us, here is how you pray. So here's Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So let's talk about what it means that Jesus would say, here is an approach to prayer. Here's a method. Here's a rubric 
start with addressing your father, which we talked about. But it's not just your father who is everywhere, not just your father who is with you, but your father who is in heaven. Tony, what does that mean? Well, Jesse, let's go to our confessional documents because I think I think it's always a good idea for us to ground ourselves in and with the historic tradition of the church. Absolutely. So the listener, uh, the astute listener may have noticed that we've actually broken up this preface in the Lord's Prayer into two separate episodes. So you have to read the whole question and understand that the, the fact that God is our Father and the fact that God is our Father who is in heaven, that that's actually interrelated with each other, right? So question uh, 189 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what doth the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer is the preface of the Lord's Prayer contained in these words, our Father which art in heaven, teacheth us that when we pray to draw near to God, speaking of children, when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein with reverence and all other childlike dispositions. So that part is that part is mostly the our father part. And now it switches over to more of the which are in heaven part. It says heavenly affections and due apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty and gracious condescension as also to pray with and for others. So that last part is just making comment on the fact that it's our father, not my father. So the fact that he's our father in he- in heaven, rather than, as you've kind of pointed out, our, our father who is omnipotent and omnipresent, right. it, it's a specific um, locating of God within the kingdom that he lives. So w- obviously God is omnipresent everywhere. Um, and in Solomon's dedication of the temple, you know, he talks about like our God who's in heaven, but even the heavens cannot contain him. Theologically, if you go back to like our um, the very beginning of this long series in systematic theology, when we talked about theology proper, theologically, we affirm that God is all places at all times and is fully present and fully potent in all places and at all times. Right. But there is a special way that God's presence is uh, experienced, or we can talk about his presence being present in a unique way. And there are places on earth that we can think about that, like in the temple, that God's present in the temple in in a particular way or in the tabernacle in a particular way. The Holy Spirit is present in us. He indwells us in a particular way. Um, When we meet on the Lord's day, the Lord, especially when we do the Lord's supper, the Lord Jesus by his spirit is present in a special way. And heaven is one of those places, if we even want to call it a place, but it's one of those places where God's presence is present in a special way. And we're going to get into that more when we talk later about, you know, your will as it is in heaven. But basically this is a call out to God's sovereignty. Heaven is God's special kingdom. It's his special dwelling place where everything is as it should be according to his will. And it's often contrasted in the scripture with earth, which is still God's God's place. It still is God's. Right. We're not like Manichaeans who think there's this dualism and this eternal, this eternal conflict between the good and the evil that are evenly balanced. God is sovereign over the world, too. The post mills right. can calm down. I'm not saying God is not sovereign over the world, but he's sovereign over the earth in a way that is different, or at least right yes. now, than he is sovereign in heaven. So when we pray to God who is in heaven, the specifically the God who is in heaven, we're praying to God as 
the unique sovereign ruler in the realm in which he is entirely unopposed. And that's key. So he's our father. He, he's our father. He's not just God. He's our father. Mm-hmm. And he exists in this realm in which he is utterly unopposed. He's fully sovereign. His will is fully accomplished and fully actualized. And all of the all of the people and angels and, and whatever that is in heaven are fully conformed to his will. That's the God we're praying to, the God who is in that place, as opposed right to the God who may be on earth, who is opposed by many people, or the God who is omnipresent, who may also be almost like an absent landlord because he's omnipresent, right? We're not praying to the God of deism. We're praying to the God who is in heaven. So all of those elements play into this concept of God who is in heaven. And in in some ways, the scripture sort of pictures heaven as God's kingdom and earth as under the domain of Satan. Not in this, again, not in this dualistic yin-yang kind of a thing, but that Satan exercises a significant amount of, of influence and authority on earth. That's a constrained authority. We could talk about Job. We could talk about Peter's statement that he's a roaring lion, all of those things. But in the scriptures, at least, the way that God has revealed himself to us, heaven is where he's unopposed. Earth is where he is, as of this point, still opposed by some. That's the distinction that I think, in large part, if not not exclusively, but major, majoritly, majoritedly, whatever that word there would be, um, that's what this is calling out. The sovereignty and the highly exalted nature of God is what's being pointed at here. I just got some desiring God, John Piper shivers from what you were saying right there. Of course, like you're, you're right on the money. That That's also like exactly what I was thinking about this. There is, to use one of my favorite words, like here is a contrariety, you know, not a contradistinction, a contrariety being two things that seem opposed to one another, but actually exist in consummate harmony. We have the imminence of God in that he calls us father. And when you have a loving father, you have intimacy, you have connection, you have an ability to be able to be drawn in and have a relationship that is of like the most connected level, be tightly coupled with someone else or something else. And that comes definitionally in this idea of our father. And at the same time, as you just said, that in heaven reveals the transcendence of God, that he's outside and above, unchartered, wild, untamed. We're never going to find like the edges of him, even when we exist with him together in all of eternity. We're just not going to find the edges. So this idea that our father is in heaven tells us that we're praying to a God of intimacy and authority, and both are absolutely essential. I mean, this is like the genius of Jesus that he would give us like this instruction in prayer. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently in preparation for this particular conversation is J.I. Packer has a book. I think it's called like Praying the Lord's Prayer. He has this quote, which is like kind of the kind of thing that just slaps you in the face and makes you sit down for a second. And he writes, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that it prompts. I just want to say that again. The vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that it prompts. Drab thoughts of God make prayer dull, end quote. So there's this idea that when Jesus says to us, you're not just praying again to like your father, but it's this father who is above and beyond outside of you that exists and rules over all the world, as the Psalms say. God, as I think it's Psalm 11, right? God is on the throne. David is threatened. He's running from Saul. Everything seems to be in shambles. There's complete chaos. And then he says, why are you downcast, oh, my soul? God is on the throne. And so we have, again, like these contrarieties of God is close to you as father. 
He invites you into the throne room. And yet, don't mistake the fact that he's on the throne. He controls all things, sovereign over all things. He is the God who can do anything about everything. Yeah. And that's the one that you're addressing in prayer. And so, to your point, this is a setup. It literally is a setup for later in the prayer. We start asking for the kingdom of God to come because that kingdom is reflected in the, the words in heaven. It's that kingdom, not your kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, not some geopolitical kingdom, not some ideological kingdom. It's the one that exists in heaven. And that kingdom in heaven is transcendent of all those things. All those things are actually a lesser kingdoms. They're too yeah. small for God. Yeah. He wants the kingdom that is in heaven represented in those two words. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the Lord's prayer or the model prayer, or whatever we want to call it, the disciples prayer. One of the things that I think is so beautiful about it is that every clause is so packed with meaning. And so well, while, while it's true that the pri- I think the primary focus of this phrase, which, who, which are in heaven, who is in heaven, whichever the translation you're using is really this element of sovereignty and God's kingdom. And that this is, this is the God who reigns supreme in heaven. Uh, and it is this setup for later on. It also sort of calls to mind, as, as the catechism points out, we're to approach this God not with earthly affections, but with heavenly affections. So the fact that he is God who is in heaven as opposed to God who is on earth, again, not that he's not on earth, but he's characterized as being the God who is in heaven. We should be reflecting on him, thinking about him, and coming to him with petitions in a way that is heavenly minded. Right. So that's not to say you don't pray for your earthly needs. The, 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 the Lord's prayer commands us to pray and ask God to meet our daily needs. Right. Right. Exactly. But we come to God and we praise God for who he is in heaven. Not, and, and the contrast we might want to make here is like who God is in heaven versus what God can give us on earth. We're not just coming to God because he's this cosmic genie who can meet all our needs. We're coming to him because of who he is which is in heaven. And so I, I think we need to kind of like, we need to come to this remembering that. And this is really like the model for prayer. This is why most of the different acronym acronyms that you think about for prayer, whether it's like acts or others that are similar, it starts with praising God for who he is praising God because of who he is, because of, uh, because of the nature of who and what God is. Not that we don't praise God for what he's done, especially for what he's done in Christ in, in redemption. We absolutely praise God for that. But we have to remember that had God, if God was not who he is in himself, apart from the economy of redemption, he never could have accomplished the economy of redemption. Exactly. So if he wasn't the God who is in heaven, he never would have been the God who created heaven and earth, who then you know created mankind, allowed them to fall formulated a plan and enacted a plan in order to save them. All of those things are impossible if we're not for the very nature of who God is. So I think that's another key takeaway from this phrase is that our our reasoning and our thinking about God needs to be heavenly, not, not earthly. And that is not to contrast heavenly as like spiritual versus non-spiritual. It's more to contrast like, how is it that we think about God? Do we think about God from the the way that you, so there's two ways to do Christology. We didn't talk about this during the Christology section. This may seem like a weird transition, but it's, it's useful. There's a theological perspective that talks about doing Christology from above. And then there's a theological perspective that talks about doing Christology from below. 
And Christology from above starts with God, starts with who the second person of the Trinity is as God, and then proceeds through the revelation of Scripture to what it is that the second person of the Trinity did in becoming incarnate. That's theology from above. Theology from below starts with the human Christ and then reasons backwards to something— I mean, they think they're reasoning back to the nature of God, but I, I don't think that that's actually possible. You can't start with a, a created reality and reason reason back to the nature of God that way. And in some senses, that's what this prayer is calling us to do. We don't start first and foremost by thinking about God as he's revealed himself in, in economic categories. We don't think about the economic trinity and then reason our way back to the ontological trinity in praise. We start with who God is— in and of himself. And that's how we start with prayer and praise. We pray to the God who is infinite, who is immortal, who is simple, who is unchanging and immutable, who is all, all places everywhere present and everywhere powerful. That's yeah. the God we start with rather than like the God who saved us and then reasoning yes, backwards exactly. to his nature from that. And I think that it is so easy, especially in evangelicalism, which has such an appropriate focus on what Christ has done for us, it's so easy to start with the economy of redemption and reason backwards to God, especially in prayer. How often do we start our prayers by thanking God for the fact that he saved us? Now, right. we absolutely should thank God for the fact that he saved us, but we need to think about the fact that God is worthy of praise apart from the fact that he has saved us. Yes. Sometimes we act as though the only reason why God is praiseworthy is because he saved us. But the reality is that God, in and of himself and eternity past, apart from any consideration of creation and, and sin and redemption and all of that, would have been worthy of praise. Now, there wouldn't have been anybody to praise God, but he would have been, he would have been and Doesn't was matter. worthy of praise. Um, it, it's funny, I get in a little bit of trouble when I say this sometimes. The persons of the Trinity worship each other. And by worship, I don't mean the honor given from an inferior to a superior, which is right, kind of what we think affirming. of. But they glorify each other. They honor each other. They they um, they call to the forefront the worth and the dignity and the honor and glory due to the other two persons of the Trinity. That's not something that is dependent on us or on creation or redemption. And that's just another thing that this element of the Lord's Prayer calls us to remind or to remember that God is in heaven is that he is heavenly, that he is worthy of praise because of who he is, because of his sovereignty, because of what he is, not just because of what he does and what is what he's done for us. Right. Like if we could get in some way, in some world, which would be impossible, the Holy Spirit himself to come on the podcast. And we were like, what's your affirmation? He'd be like, it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's Jesus. So there is like a, an eternal glorification, as it were, that's totally appropriate. Yeah. And what we might expect from how we understand God and how he reveals himself. Before I, I say something, let me address our voices for a second. So I know I can hear AJ in the background. He's fired up. <laughs> and we're fired up. And sometimes even our loved ones, if they listen to us conversing over the podcast, will say, your voices sound so different on the podcast than they do sometimes when I'm talking to you. And maybe I sometimes fear, as I've said before, that like people may hear that we are excited and excitable because of what we're talking about. You know, this is like amazing yeah. truth to be able to pray to God, to understand him as this kind of God. And there's so much in these prayers. I think we get this that way every week, but I find myself just so encouraged. I hope that others, again, go away from this and they'll have their own conversations and they'll go yeah. back to the scriptures. They'll look at Matthew 
and they'll try to understand what it means and not just take like our words as somehow this, you know, kind of immutable truth, but go to the scriptures, which is the immutable truth. And so I want to kick it back to like Daniel 40, your point, because I think that in the Lord's prayer, we also have a, a instruction toward direction and that idea of in heaven, what it means for God to be in heaven, that we have heavenly thoughts. Also, by the way, super puritanical of you. So well done on you, sir. <laughs> That's some you know, this puritanical theme of what it means to have like heavenly thoughts and to be informed by the Lord's prayer toward that direction and toward its application in our lives in the most pragmatic ways where there's actual shoe leather on our theology. And so I want to kick it back to Daniel 4, because if we go there, what you're going to find, and I'm about to get excited in a second here, is that we have this Persian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and God absolutely humiliates him. Like it's a, it's a pure, like taking his face and rubbing it in the dirt. And so here you have one who is like, and terribly like has the most power, privilege, and wealth of anybody on the entire globe. And you have God absolutely destroying him, like in, in the most like inconceivable way. And so Nebuchadnezzar himself says, I'm just going to quote Daniel 4, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then he goes on to praise this one true God. He says, who does as he pleases without getting human permission. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble, end quote. So while his eyes, as Nebuchadnezzar's eyes were on his own glory and splendor, he had no sense of transcendence. It's only when this transcendence, like our raising of eyes toward heaven, then we can actually realize that there is like a divine humiliation, that the reality is finally set into place for ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar realized he was not a God. He was not God himself, that he was neither the center of God's universe, nor was he the center of his own. And so like to the extent that modern evangelicals have resisted humiliation, to that extent, we or they are incapable of understanding Nebuchadnezzar's joy and sense of release at discovering the majesty, holiness, and sovereignty of God. So I submit that when God says, or Jesus says to us, pray to your father who is in heaven, he's directing our eyes Godward, which is up, so to speak, which is heavenly word, yeah. so that we are humiliated in our own way. That even in this prayer, we sense that like God, if I can say it this way, I like to use like some business terms, he right sizes us, he downsizes us, he yeah. fires us, he puts us in our place, but he puts us in a place as our father. It's not like... He's subjecting us in this kind of like overbearing schoolmaster kind of way. He's doing it in a way that's loving and kind to let us know this is the truth about reality and where you stand in it. And when you understand yourselves as contingent beings, when you come to me in prayer and realize that you are contingent, then you receive by means of grace and as a gift, all of the blessings of Christ. But until you are in that place, you cannot receive that gift, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So we sometimes have a lost transcendence in pursuit of our own power and splendor. And we have a God who says, when you pray to me, I'm going to right size you. And that is the brilliance of this to me, is that this is like the consistent theme of the Old Testament. The children of Israel are always caused to raise their eyes. So when they're on pilgrim pilgrimage to Jerusalem, God's made it clear as they ascend, they're going up to the city of God. That the Israelites, like in the Psalm 121, would say, like, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so God promises Isaiah, like in his restored vision, in that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. 
They will not look to the altars or to the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. So to me, this is like this clear clarion call, which is consistent throughout the Old Testament, where God is saying, when you pray, I'm going to right-size you. Like in, in some ways, many have said like Ian Bounds, most famously, prayer is the work that God does in us, not for him, but to us. So in that way, we find like in these four words that he's setting us in the right place. All the subsequent like requests that come, and this is like a series of requests, even the first one, like our father in heaven, all of that is predicated on the fact that we understand who God is and who we are. And so it's just amazing gift. It's so deep. This is like a well that you can continue to draw up this living water from. It just never goes dry. Yeah. And so I think that we have to respect the fact that it's almost like God invites us. And then in the invitation, he says, but wait. Yeah. And so like, know who I am. Like there is like this full unreserved invitation to come into relationship with him, to address him in ways that are like scandalous. And yet like in that scandalous way of addressing him, he says, and yet there ought to be reverence. And yet like, do not over, do not make this like over relevant, over practical, because the bottom line is if we're to use like Downton, like Abbey language, you still live downstairs. Right. And so I invite you into relationship, but know where your quarters are and where your bed sits. It's not up with me in the heavens. It's the fact that I am heavenly. And though I invite you into this heavenly realm, I'm the one who has command and control over all things. I, I could go down the rabbit hole of Downton Abbey metaphors here. And I probably shouldn't just because it might reveal something about me that I'm not sure I want our audience to know. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's right on. And the the example that comes to mind, and maybe it doesn't land quite right, but it's been many, many years since I got married to your little sister. Uh, but I, one of the things I remember is the sort of like anxiety over who gets a plus one and who doesn't. Do you remember this when you were planning your wedding invitations of like, yeah, does sure. this person get a plus one? And and when you get a wedding invitation, now when you're married, it's kind of assumed you're going to bring your spouse to the wedding. But when you're a single person and you get a wedding invitation and your wedding invitation allows you to bring a plus one. That's actually like a status, right? Like you get a plus one and and it's kind of the same thing. Like there is this, um, there's probably a lot of people that are going to get triggered by this, but there's this invitation from God to be united to him, right? Now, obviously like this is a reform podcast. There's all sorts of theology behind that, but there's this invitation that God issues to us. And you're right. It's an invitation that establishes our status. We're invited to come to him. And we come to him as children, but we also come to him as servants. And so just like when you get an invitation and you, you don't get a plus one, like that says something about like your status in relation to the other people in the wedding. Um, Maybe that's an example that falls flat for some people, but it says something about you. Or like if you get an invitation to the wedding and you get to sit at the family table, even though you're not family, that's a big deal. And it's kind of the same thing. Like, we get this invitation to come to the Lord in a certain sense. And this is the this is the beauty of it, is that although it's true that we come to the Lord and we're kind of downsized in our prayer, at the same time, we're elevated in our prayer. It's this weird paradoxical thing that happens. And this is this last, sort of this last feature of what the Reformed tradition reflects on, is that when we pray to God who is in heaven, we're also praying to the God who came down from heaven to be Amen. one of us. 
And so just like last week, we talked about the fact that the fact that we're praying to our father doesn't necessarily mean that we're praying only to the first person of the Trinity. We're praying to the God who condescended to us. And so although it's true that the supreme condescension of God is the incarnation, it's not the case that the father and spirit did not condescend to us. So like the, I don't remember exactly what it is. I'm sure it's chapter eight of the Westminster Confession, but I don't have it in front of me. We would not have any knowledge of God, let alone any fruition of God, which is what it, what it talks about in the, the confession, any fruition in God, were it not for the fact that God condescended to us and made a covenant with us, the covenant of life initially and the covenant of grace subsequent to the fall. That's the God we're praying to. We're praying to the God who is in heaven, although we are on earth. And the only way that that we could pray to that God or have any union or fruition with that God is if that God crossed that gap from heaven to earth to come to us. Now, again, that primarily happens and, and supremely happens in the incarnation itself. God becomes one of us in Christ Jesus, right? But God reveals himself to us prior, temporally prior to the incarnation and logically prior to the incarnation that he is the God who condescends to us. So, so praying to God who is in heaven reminds us not only of God's loftiness or his transcendence is the theological term. He's a God who's transcendent over creation. He's not a creature. He's not part of creation. He's not bound by creation. Yet he's also a God who is imminent within creation and that he reveals himself to us in created language. He condescends in that he subjects himself to creaturely language to be described in the Bible and through nature, kind of tying into our affirmations here. He subjects himself to this description, to this creaturely language in order to accommodate himself to us. So there's this paradox that we're, we're reminded of the loftiness of God, the transcendence of God when we pray to the God who is in heaven. But we're also reminded that God has to come to us. So we're praying to God in his imminence. We're praying to God in his condescension when we pray right. to the God who's in heaven because he has to come to us in order for our prayers to be heard. It's If you want to think of it this way, um, I can shout across a chasm and I may not be heard, right? If you're standing on the other side of the Grand Canyon and I shout at you, it's probably not the case that you're going to hear me or hear me clearly. But if you come to my side of the Grand Canyon, I no longer need to shout. That's sort of the metaphor that the scripture is using. I can shout and shout and shout at God. And anthropologically, God's not going to hear me because my shouts, my prayers are not powerful enough to reach across that chasm. It's only because God comes to me and hears my prayers. God hearing my prayers is a function of his sovereignty and his power not a function of my ability to project myself to God. And so the, this, this element of the prayer that we're praying to God who's in heaven, it underscores both of those realities. That God is both so far away that apart from him, he would not hear my prayers, but right. also that he has drawn himself near to me so closely that he would hear even a whisper of my prayers. Yeah. Even the prayers that I don't know how to pray, he hears and he corrects and he clarifies because the Holy Spirit is within me. Both of those realities are there. That's the beauty of this is there's so much, there's so much theology and so much, um, there's so much depth, both theologically and practically in this prayer. So for example, part of this two minute challenge we've been doing. So for those of us 
Those who may be new to the show this week, we've issued this same challenge the past several weeks in a row, a couple weeks in a row, um, to set a timer for two minutes and just pray for those two minutes. And you may feel at first like you you can't fill those two minutes or three minutes, whatever you start that timer at. But I think you'll find that if you start your prayer, this has been my experience over the last week. Because I knew we were coming up to this, because we were praying, we were talking through the prologue or the preface to the Lord's Prayer. I've been focused on this concept of our Father, which art in heaven. So even when I don't pray the, the model prayer verbatim, I still have been starting my prayers with our Father who art in heaven. That drives me into prayer that what I'm finding is that by the time I get through, if you're using the ACTS, um, A-C-T-S, um, like acronym for your prayer structure, the adoration part, the A part, by the time I get done with reflecting on what it means that, that he's our Father who art in heaven, I'm already past the two-minute mark. I don't know if that's been your experience, but like, if I start my prayers by really focusing on who it is that God is, what it is that God is, not focusing just on what he's done, but who he is in and of himself, that two minutes blows by before I get to any of the other parts of the model prayer or any other parts of whatever acronym I'm using. That's To me, that's just a miracle of how this prayer functions. Like God draws us into himself and it shouldn't be surprising to us that the infinite God can fill the first two minutes of my prayer. Like just reflection on who God, the infinite God is, can easily fill the first two minutes of my prayer without me really even having to like try or put any effort towards it. And I think that's the beauty of this preface is it it does that for us. It fills our prayers and it starts us in prayer from this place of just marveling at the infinite, eternal, immortal God who condescends to us to not only reveal himself to us, but to save us and to become one of us in Christ Jesus. I don't know. I, I'm all fired up now. And the screaming of my son that you heard earlier was him trying to go down for his nap. I'm really surprised he's not freaking out that I'm like yelling into my microphone across the hall because I'm really, really excited about this. Like I'm super jazzed and I just, I can't quite express how excited I am. Jesse can see my face right now on, on our <laughs> webcam. I'm just so stoked about prayer right now, which is someplace, if I'm being really honest, is not somewhere that I've found myself in the past in my Christian life. But like, I'm excited in the morning when it comes up in my little list of, of things I'm journaling about to get to the prayer section, because we have this beautiful, robust starting point for prayer. We should never feel like we lack things to pray about, because even if we just praise God for two minutes, that's a beautiful thing to do. You're absolutely right. It's imminence and transcendence. And I think that is the best way to think about these four words, our Father in heaven. By the way, we are contractually obligated to say this episode, and in fact, this entire series of When You Pray is brought to you by the two-minute prayer, which is the <laughs> challenge where you set a timer and you say, listen, I want to develop a greater habit of prayer. I'm not going to miss a day. All you need is two minutes, loved ones. So we encourage you to keep doing that. And we also want to thank all those who are part of the family of the Reformed Brotherhood who have decided to support the podcast, cover incidental costs, and have basically gone Jericho style by tearing down all the paywalls. So you will never <laughs> find any of this information, any of these podcasts, any of the conversations, anything on the website that requires you to put in a credit card number or a blood type or a social security number because the idea is freely you have received, freely you ought to give. So again, I think, Tony, you and I have talked about this so many times. Whatever it is, the conversation, whatever it is, the topic, we're hoping that people will process it 
and then go out and have a similar conversation with somebody else, your spouse or a loved one or a good friend, go invite them to coffee. And let's say, let's talk about the Lord's prayer. Better yet, let's pray together. So if there's a prayer meeting at your church, if there's a corporate gathering or prayer, and in our case here, as we're talking about private prayer, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so we ought to be about trying to make sure that we set aside, in this case, just two minutes to start thinking about the Lord's prayer. And we're hoping that this has been a springboard for exactly that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, this preface, and I think I think it's safe to say that this is part of what the preface is intended to do. These two episodes on what is sometimes historically called the preface of the Lord's Prayer, it really has me excited to go into the rest of this series, right? Because now that we've established like who it is that this this God is that we're praying to and why it is that we're praying to him and how it is we even come to him in prayer, all of that is baked into the preface to this prayer that we given, we've been given. Now we can go into reflection on this. And we can just enjoy sort of like, kind of like you said, like now we can sit in the slow cooker of this preface, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know sure. about you, but like when you make a like good crockpot meal, part of the fun of it is like thinking about all the stuff you're putting in and what it's going to turn into. Like, I'm going to toss these carrots in. I'm going to toss this celery in. And like, I don't love celery, but like, I know that this is going to be delicious and the celery is going to add something to it. That's kind of like where the preface is, is like now that we've got this base for what it is that we're doing in prayer and how it is that we're doing it, the rest of these like petitions, um, it's not that the petitions in and of themselves aren't great, but they're that much better when we recognize that we're coming now before this God who is not only able to answer our prayers, but desires to answer our prayers insofar right. as we pray agreeably to his will. Now we've got all these petitions coming up. We get to pray that God's name will be hallowed. We get to pray that God's kingdom will come. All of that is like, that's not your normal evangelical prayer model. It's funny, you kind of make I kind of make fun of this. I remember going to prayer meetings and literally having prayer meetings where people would come and ask us to pray. And please hear me when I say this. I love my dog, but I remember going to prayer meetings where people would come and ask for a prayer for their dog. Not, not in like, my dog is really sick and might die, but like my dog has an upset stomach and threw up a little bit yesterday. Like, okay. Yeah. I don't want your dog to be sick, but like, I'm not going to spend time in my corporate prayer meeting praying about your dog's upset tummy. That's like, in my experience, that's very much the normal evangelical prayer model. It's, it's my immediate needs. And often it's my immediate needs in very trivial, frivolous things right? Pray that I have a nice draw, a nice commute to work tomorrow because it's really frustrating when, when it takes me 15 minutes to get to work until instead of 10 minutes because traffic is bad. Okay. Like there's no request that God is not desirous to hear of us. He's, he wants us to come to him with our needs and our desires. Right. But at the end of the day, like that's the model of evangelical prayer. It's very me centered. Right. The Lord's prayer certainly has an element of praying for our own needs but I think that Christ encourages us and challenges us to expand our prayer life outside of just like what it is that God can give me. It's not just what it is that God can give me. It's who God is, it's what God is doing in the world. It is what God can give me, but it's what can God give me and how, how God gives me what he gives me, how that increases my trust in him. 
So as we go into these next several episodes, it'll probably be through the rest of the summer and then some of, of the Lord's Prayer, I really want us to think about how it is that this prayer is challenging to our presuppositions about prayer. And not just our like our intellectual presuppositions, but like the practical presuppositions we bring in how we pray. So that's been another part of this two-minute challenge that's been a, a, a I don't know, a struggle for me is I've had to think about how to reorient my prayer in light of how the Lord teaches us to pray. A lot of times when you're a new Christian and you you start to learn to pray by observation, unless you're in a really good, like reformed church that is um, structured according to the regulative principle and what it is that God teaches in scripture, which I think most of our audience, they're probably in churches like that now, but they they probably came to faith and grew up in the faith in churches that weren't there. Observationally, the way that evangelical churches pray, not not I'm not talking about the motivation of their heart. I don't know those things, but I'm assuming that that most of the people that I interacted with that I would question their methodology in prayer. Most of them are very genuine people who love the Lord and aren't trying to do anything untoward, right? But the model and the sort of prayer that we catch, the caught theology of prayer, is very, very me-centered and very shallow. And I think the Lord's Prayer pushes us to, to go deeper than that theologically, practically. It forces us to think through our prayers. How does what I'm praying for fit into one of these petitions? Where does it fall in this sort of rubric of prayer? And that's not to say that if you can't neatly align something to like one of these petitions, that it's not a valid thing to pray for. But if you can't align what you're praying for with one of these petitions, I think that should give us pause. So I'm really, really excited to go into this series now that we've laid this groundwork of what it is that we pray for and who it is that we pray to. That stretches us and pushes us. So now to add to the two-minute challenge, Start your two-minute challenge prayer with our Father who art in heaven. And all, right. all that comes with that, right? So now not only are we praying about our Father who art in heaven, that should drive and structure and constrain our prayers. It's funny, the Pentecostals, Charismatics, will talk about freedom in prayer. I'm actually more interested right now with constraining our prayers to the biblical model. And to me, that's that there's a freedom within that constraint that like I no longer need to feel like I have to fill up this prayer time. I'm given the the divinely ordained structure of prayer by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a blessing. It's like a protective boundary that we're given in this prayer. Yeah, you're totally right about that. There's so much, of course, about the Lord's Prayer that is like a colander or a sieve. We pass our prayers through it. And we should see at the end what really falls out because it provides this lovely filtering effect, like you said, trying to align what we're praying that with the petitions that are represented in the Lord's Prayer. And again, to your point, this is the way in which God does a great work in us by praying. Not that we try to bend his ear in a way that we get what we want because he's some cosmic butler, but actually that God is calling us to interact with him in a way that purifies the very things that we're asking for. And I just want to comment on what you said. It's not to say, of course, the scripture is clear that we ought to cast our burdens on Christ, that we ought to come before God with the desires of our hearts. And yet at the same time, the call of this prayer is basically this saying something like, ask God for the things that only God 
can give, yeah. like forgiveness and eternal life and salvation. Nobody else can give that. Who can give that to you? Your father, who is where? In heaven. Yep. Over in control, over in every possible way, and who himself has condescended towards you to be like you yet without sin. And so to be the second and final Adam, so that he could give you eternal life if you would ask him, if you would come and repent before him, if you would recognize your contingency upon him, and if you'd put all of your faith and hope and trust in him. So with that in mind, I think it's appropriate to end with another zinger from John Owen, from his sermons, his 13 sermons in gospel life. I just want to say this, like John Owen needs no hype man and we need a hype man, but he doesn't like, again, I'd imagine he would say this and somebody like in the back would be like, Oh, but like, here's, <laughs> here's another like, throwaway line from, from a sermon and all the things that we talked about of like this watered down evangelicalism that would like depreciate the Lord's prayer. It would make it trivial and would use like these kind of like, you know, cheap way of supplications in, in, Instead of coming before the God and asking for things only God give, here's what Owen says. Again, just as a throwaway line, but it is nothing new for men who love novelties to argue themselves into some unanticipated corner and then to withdraw or retire with little grace. <laughs> oh, I don't John know why you're Owen. I'm talking about you. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jesse, <laughs> rather than try to come up with some sweet stellar outro that synthesizes all of this together. I'm just going to say until next time, honor everyone. Let's love that brotherhood.